In English, we have a proverb, money doesn't grow on trees, or so I was told growing up repeatedly. Solomon's teaching in Proverbs chapter 2 could be summarized similarly, wisdom doesn't grow on trees. That's an important point because as we looked at last week, the first humans, Adam and Eve, seemed to believe that wisdom did in fact grow on a particular tree. So what does the proverb, money doesn't grow on trees, seek to communicate to us? Money isn't as easy to acquire as plucking fruit from a tree. Money doesn't naturally return the way fruit does in its season. How do we get money then? Well, typically we must work for it and keep working for it. Or alternatively, we may receive it as a gift. Since the gift of money is usually relatively rare and insufficient for sustaining our daily needs throughout our lives, the normal way of acquiring money is to work for it. The teaching of Solomon in Proverbs 2 suggests that the acquisition of wisdom is similar, but different. We're going to see a familiar tension here. God offers to give wisdom to his people as a gift, but he also commands us to work really hard for it. Proverbs 2 is a tightly wound poetic argument structured in six stanzas. Some read it as a single Hebrew sentence. One writer suggests that chapter 2 provides an abridgment or a summary of the whole book of Proverbs. Last week, we heard the voice of Lady Wisdom, God's wisdom personified as a prophetic type of Jesus. This week, we return to listening to the voice of the wise father, King Solomon, but we'll hear him pointing to Lady Wisdom, encouraging his son to pursue her in intimate terms. Since this is one long sentence in Hebrew, let's get the whole thing in front of us. Open up a Bible to Proverbs chapter 2 and follow along as I read. These verses won't be up on the screen. We'll read the entirety of Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. For Yahweh gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land And those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. 
Now let's back up and consider the first stanza where Solomon describes wisdom as hidden treasure and challenges us to seek it out. Look again at verses 1 to 4. He labels the object of our search as my words, my commandments, wisdom, understanding, and insight. Solomon's words addressing his son are equated with commandments, wisdom, understanding, and insight. Thus, God's wisdom is rooted in verbal revelation. The wisdom we as God's people need is not some kind of intuition or mere inner quality. Rather, it is rooted and shaped by God's verbal revelation in Scripture. Interestingly, even though the father instructs his son to treasure up my commandments, there aren't actually any commands in this chapter. Nevertheless, the most important thing to recognize here is that everything in verses 1 to 4 are actions we must take in order to get wisdom. The ifs are pressing on us our responsibility. He begins by calling us to receive His words. This call to receive from the Father provides a governing umbrella over all the other things we're called to do in these verses. His words come to us from outside of us, ultimately from the pages of Scripture. But receiving is not a merely passive act. Each verb in Proverbs 2, 1 to 4 builds on the one before, escalating the effort required in our engagement with God's Word. We must treasure up Solomon's commands, which are to be viewed as equivalent to God's commandments in Scripture. This treasuring up challenges us to view God's Word as the treasure that it is. Psalm 119 is helpful in highlighting the value of God's Word. In fact, the psalmist there uses the same verb Solomon uses here. In Psalm 119.11, we read, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There we see storing or treasuring of God's word in the heart as a preventive measure taken against sin. Indeed, Solomon will present the same idea as he highlights the value and protective power of God's wisdom in Proverbs 2. But also the son is to treasure up my commandments with you. That is to say, take these words with you everywhere you go. Pastor Dan Phillips writes, we are to make God's words so much our own possession that they cannot be taken from us. We need to store and hold on to God's words like a computer's hard drive receives and stores data, as Phillips says. That is, we are to view God's words of wisdom as our permanent possession, something we never get past, never go beyond, never graduate from. Can I share with you my greatest fear? When I think about the possibility of persecution, I don't dwell on the possibility of physical torture or things like that. I reflect instead on the possibility of being separated from my Bible long enough that I forget its words, forget its teachings. I'm afraid I haven't stored enough up here in my head or in here in my heart to sustain me in those days. But you know how I combat that fear? I remember the promise that God's grace is sufficient for me. And His grace will be sufficient to sustain me should such an occasion arise. In verse 2, Solomon insists that the son must engage with God's word with all that he is. Reference to your ear speaks of externally hearing God's word 
as it comes to you from the outside, while your heart speaks of internalizing God's wisdom. Whereas Solomon speaks here of the need for his son to tilt his own heart to the understanding being offered in God's word, the psalmist of Psalm 119 asks the Lord to do the tilting. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Reading Proverbs 2.2 together with Psalm 119.36 helps us see the tension between God's grace and our efforts. And Solomon will hold both sides of that tension wisely together, as we'll see in due course. In verse 3 of Proverbs 2, Solomon instructs his son to get loud in his request for wisdom. We must call out and raise our voice using the same terms describing Lady Wisdom's summons back in chapter 1. Thus, we are to respond to Lady Wisdom's summons with the same intensity and enthusiasm with which she calls. Turning the image around a bit, think about how a young lady responds to the marriage proposal of her beloved suitor, loudly, repeatedly, and enthusiastically. If you find that wisdom isn't coming quickly, keep on crying out for it. One commentator suggests that if understanding does not come immediately, one should raise the voice to a higher pitch and put forth greater efforts. The question is, how desperate are you for God's wisdom? How much do you really want it? Speaking of Lady Wisdom, it makes good sense for Solomon to still be referring to her in these verses. In the New American Standard Bible, verse 4 reads, If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. The translators probably recognize that Solomon is still personifying wisdom, and he's encouraging his son to pursue her as he might pursue an eligible young woman. The crying out of Lady Wisdom is to be matched by the sons crying out for her like lovers seeking each other in the street, as one writer puts it. The words understanding and insight are also grammatically feminine in Hebrew, and they can be viewed as nicknames for Lady Wisdom to continue the personification. Comparing wisdom to silver and to hidden treasures impresses on us the high value of God's wisdom. Do we view it that way? Are we willing to pay the cost for such treasure? Author Derek Tidball reminds us, many of the things we prize in life are valued because we worked or struggled patiently for them until the day came when we could afford them or achieved them. We generally do not value that which falls into our laps. Also, we remember that Paul takes the same image and applies it to Jesus. Surely, Paul was thinking of this verse when he said in Colossians 2-3 that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. What Solomon is describing here is the exact opposite of the complacency of fools, Lady Wisdom mentioned in Proverbs 1-32. Fools don't see wisdom as valuable, so they are unwilling to put forth the effort to pursue it. And as Lady Wisdom said, that kind of complacency will destroy fools. But Solomon is emphasizing the need for his son and for us to have a willingness to learn and a willingness to work in pursuit of God's wisdom. As one student of Scripture puts it, a character shaped by wisdom does not fall into one's lap, but must be actively sought. In the second stanza, however, Solomon shifts to describing wisdom as a gift of God. Wisdom is a theological gift, a phrase that has a couple of different connotations. The wisdom Solomon is offering is ultimately sourced in God himself. Therefore, to get wisdom, you've got to get God. 
But the wisdom itself, the practical skill for living in God's world, is thoroughly theological in that it is shaped by the fear of the Lord. After the several ifs of verses 1 to 4, we are looking for a then. And we get the first then in verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. In the very important theme verse of Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is presented as the beginning of knowledge. We recognize it as the starting line of the race, the prerequisite for the coursework, and the foundational principle that shapes every bit of wisdom in this great book. But here, the fear of the Lord is presented as the goal. Could it be that the starting line is also the finish line? Isn't that often the case in a race around a circular track? You've got to run so many laps, but ultimately you end up where you started. In verses 5 to 8, there's a focus on wisdom's impact on our relationship with the Lord. In the next stanza, we'll see wisdom's impact on our relationship with other people. As we discussed the concept of the fear of the Lord a few weeks ago, we discovered that it has to do with being thrilled with the Lord, in awe of His greatness, drawn to His immensity, rather than being terrified by Him, repelled by Him, or afraid of Him. Thus, this concept is reflective of a right relationship with God including trusting Him and obeying Him and turning away from sin and foolishness. So we must have that right relationship with the Lord before we receive His practical instruction in wise living in His world. But once we have that right relationship, we enroll in His school and we begin the race of the Christian life. And we thus begin the pursuit of growing in grace And Solomon here suggests that all of that culminates in our understanding the fear of the Lord. I suppose this should take the pressure off of us if we're still struggling to grasp the concept of the fear of the Lord. Pastor Dan Phillips suggests a school analogy. The fear of the Lord is to be the major of every Christian. And once we've enrolled in Christ's school, we enter first year fear of Yahweh, then we'll go into second year fear of Yahweh, and then third year fear of Yahweh, and on and on forever and ever. Solomon builds on this in the second line. He says the pursuit of wisdom will also lead us to finding the knowledge of God. I was surprised to discover that the phrase knowledge of God only appears three times in the Old Testament and four times in the New Testament. The phrase is simple enough, but we should make sure we're clear that it doesn't simply refer to head knowledge or knowing facts about God. Indeed, we could translate the phrase fairly enough as knowing God. Commentator Bruce Waltke writes, In short, knowledge of God refers to personal intimacy with Him through obedience to His Word. The notions of cognitive response to His revelation and existential intimacy and obedience are inseparable. What he means by that last phrase is you shouldn't separate understanding truths about God, experiencing personal intimacy with God, and obedience to God's Word. They're a package deal. In other words, to adapt a phrase from another Old Testament wisdom book, the threefold cord of knowledge, devotion, and obedience is not to be quickly broken. Verses 6 to 8 then provide the reason this is true. To be clear, verses 6 to 8 are explaining why it is that if you seek God's wisdom the way verses 1 to 4 describe, then you'll understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. Verse 6 is key. For Yahweh gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. 
Commentator Derek Kidner is helpful when he writes simply, what you find, then, is what he gives. Discovery and revelation are inseparable. Also, John Kitchen writes, God's wisdom comes only as a gift, but he does not give it if we will not seek it. Now, we must be careful here. He is not saying that the Lord pays us for our labors with wisdom. He's not saying our seeking and our digging earns the reward of wisdom. He's not saying that we are earning a reward in all of this. Consider the analogy provided by Easter egg hunts. The parents carefully hide eggs all over the yard, and they turn their children loose to find them. However, for the younger kids especially, the parents may very well come alongside them, and while letting them look for a long time, and cheering them on all along the way, there comes a point where they end up showing them where they hid the, e- the Easter eggs. The kids put forth the effort. They looked high and low and walked back and forth across the yard several times. But for the kids to find them all, the parents must provide some help. It's not a perfect analogy, but it does illustrate effectively, I think, the combination of parental kindness and childlike diligence. But if Solomon's still personifying wisdom as this wonderful woman that his son really ought to get to know better, if you know what I mean, then another image commends itself. Yahweh gives wisdom the way a father gives away his daughter in marriage. Indeed, some have suggested that we should view Lady Wisdom, in a sense, as the divine daughter of God, metaphorically speaking. Metaphors aside, the second line tells us more plainly what he means. It is from his mouth that knowledge and understanding come. That is to say, wisdom is found in the words of the Lord. God's wisdom doesn't come in the form of a feeling or a mystical impulse. Rather, it comes in the form of spirit-exhaled words of God. Thus, as Solomon writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... His words to His Son become God's words to all of God's children. And as such, Solomon's words, which he instructed his son to listen to in verse 1, are to be equated with God's words. Thus far, in chapters 1 and 2 of Proverbs, we've encountered the Father's words to His Son, Lady Wisdom's words addressed to the simple, and now we're directed to hear Yahweh's words. All of this is reflective of Deuteronomy 8.3 part of which is famously quoted by the Lord Jesus in his encounter with Satan in the wilderness. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. We can recall how Jesus effectively used the words that came from the mouth of Yahweh, the words of Scripture, as his own protection from the evil one. And Solomon is going to expand on that very idea in a few verses. But first, verses 7 and 8 speak more about Yahweh himself. As the son was instructed to treasure up Solomon's commandments with him, so the Lord stores up sound wisdom for the upright. It's the same Hebrew word. Where, where does the Lord store this sound wisdom for upright people? In the Scriptures. Or, as Paul says, in Christ. Ultimately, the Lord has hidden away every aspect of His wisdom in Jesus Himself. Perhaps I'll venture another analogy. The gold mine in which we are to go treasure hunting for wisdom is the Bible. 
And the treasure that is scattered abroad in this mine is Jesus himself. When we find him in the Bible, we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Furthermore, in a common image found in the Psalms, Yahweh is described as a shield to those who walk in integrity. The Lord is the one who effectively preserves us in our uprightness, enables us to maintain our integrity in this world. He has committed to protect us like a powerful shield from the onslaughts of the enemy. I am reminded yet again of Psalm 119, this time verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Also, I am reminded of Paul's shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I believe that Paul's presentation of the armor of God centers around this shield, and the entire suit of armor is an elaborate metaphor encouraging us to trust Jesus, to rest securely in the promises of the gospel, which guarantee our eternal security and our day-to-day safety from the onslaught of Satan's forces in this world. Faith in Jesus, trusting Jesus, belief in the gospel, believing the truth about what he has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection, Paul says, can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. All of them. Nothing gets through. Solomon associates this protection with the pursuit of wisdom. Proverbs 2.8 goes on to describe how the Lord guards His people as they pursue justice, as defined in Scripture, and how the Lord watches over the way of His saints. The ESV follows the tradition of the King James Version in using the word saints here, but the Hebrew term is not connected to the language of holiness. Instead, this word is chassid. You might have heard of Hasidic Jews. It's related to the rich Hebrew word chesed, which is often translated steadfast love or loving kindness, or even mercy. The basic idea is that of loyal love. Thus, chassidim refers to people who are loyal covenant partners with Yahweh. They are those who remain faithful to the Lord. The Lord has promised to protect all those who are loyal to Him, and He will not fail in fulfilling that promise to each and every one of His people. The third stanza in verses 9 to 11 presents the second then statement, And these verses focus on the impact of wisdom on our relationships with other people. Particularly, we see wisdom's protective power in these verses. Verse 9 begins with an overarching summary statement that reflects the opening of the book. When Solomon laid out the purposes of pulling together this grand collection of Proverbs, he centered everything around the impact he expects God's wisdom to have on God's people. In chapter 1, verse 3, he summarized that picture with three nouns, Righteousness, justice, and equity. And those three words recur here in chapter 2, verse 9. If we'll pursue God's wisdom the way chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 tell us to, then we will gain an experiential understanding of what these three terms mean. It's important to see the sequence. Verse 5, pointing to our coming to understand the fear of the Lord, comes before verse 9, pointing to our coming to understand our ethical responsibilities. Knowing God must precede doing right. And we can't ultimately do right without knowing God. At the end of verse 9, Solomon summarizes these three qualities, righteousness, justice, and equity, as every good path. Then, as before in the previous stanza, verses 10 and 11 provide an explanation of why it is that pursuing wisdom the way Solomon described in verses 1 to 4 will result in gaining discernment to recognize every good path. 
He promises that wisdom will come into your heart. We saw a hint of this a few weeks ago in relation to the new covenant promises. When God promises through Jeremiah that he will put the fear of the Lord in the hearts of his people, he's talking about the internalization of God's wisdom. Thus, wisdom entering our hearts and knowledge becoming pleasant, desirable, attractive to our soul is related to the circumcision of the heart promised in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, the heart transplant promised by Ezekiel, and the new birth promised by Jesus. Solomon is describing the kind of new heart, the kind of new spirit that the sinner receives at conversion. As Derek Tidball puts it, to live wisely, we need more than education. We need regeneration, the life-giving transformation of our dead hearts by the Spirit of God. Verse 11 then adds that the newly received discretion and understanding will provide protection, will watch over and guard the believer. But back in verse 8, it was Yahweh himself who watches over and guards the believer. I can't do better than Derek Tidball here, who writes, Protection then comes from God by our learning, discretion, and understanding. They prove to be watchful sentries by alerting us to the difference between right and wrong, encouraging us to shun the temptation to do wrong, and building into our lives godly habits that while they do not make us immune from sin, act substantially as preventative medicine and cause us to live healthy lives for God. Likewise, Bruce Waltke writes, there is no tension between the Lord protecting saints and the saints' characters guarding them from evil. God's protection becomes effective through the Son's formed character. The second half of the poem begins in verse 12. And Solomon here develops what the protection of God's wisdom looks like. In verses 12 to 15, we see how God's wisdom rescues us from the evil man and from evil men. First, we learn about the evil man's discourse. The greatest danger the evil man poses is his perverted speech. Such a person uses his words to turn everything upside down and inside out. Such men call evil good and good evil. God's wisdom rescues us from being persuaded by such perspectives because knowing the Lord grants us insight to the truth of how things really are. God's wisdom is shaped by Scripture, which contains absolute truth. As we study the Bible and learn God's wisdom, we can discern when someone is saying something that is exactly backwards from the truth, no matter how cleverly it's spun. Secondly, in verse 13, we learn about the evil man's departure. He forsakes the straight paths of God's wisdom. Such a man is depicted as an apostate, one who once claimed allegiance to Yahweh, but at some point abandoned worshiping him. The second line of verse 13 indicates that such a man chooses dark side alleys instead. He prefers the darkness to the light. One writer suggests that Solomon may have in mind people like Cain or Esau, who were raised by God-fearing parents, but who did not embrace Yahweh as their own God. These are people such as John describes in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. God's wisdom protects us from following them onto the dark roads. Lady Wisdom's call was presumably in the middle of the day, in full daylight, out in public, whereas the dark paths that these evil men prefer are characterized by secret sin and believing lies. Thirdly, in verse 14, Solomon tells us about the evil man's delight. John Kitchen refers to such a man as a connoisseur of corruption. 
Such a man delights in doing evil, embracing the pleasure offered by sin. Ultimately, such a man has a seared conscience. He is not pained by feelings of shame or guilt when he sins. Paul spoke of men under the judgment of God being handed over to commit shameless acts with other men. This is the irony of Pride Month. The public celebration of clear distortions and clear violations of God's clearly revealed good design for human sexuality and sexual expression should provoke lament among us. And Christians must not be pressed into joining the celebration. God's wisdom which has so much to say about the area of sexuality, will deliver us from caving under the influence of those who would celebrate what God calls an abomination. Finally, in verse 15, Solomon tells us about the evil man's demeanor. Crooked and devious are the key descriptors. Such a person is twisted fundamentally. The opposite of crooked and devious is the word translated upright back in verse 7. It describes something that's physically Straight up and down, up and right, literally. God's wisdom keeps us on the path of uprightness and protects us from being deceived by the distortions of evil men. In verses 16 to 19, we see how God's wisdom rescues us from the forbidden woman. Some versions introduce her as the strange woman. In the second line of verse 16, most English Bibles utilize the term adulteress with a footnote indicating that the Hebrew literally refers to a foreign woman. What is the nature of this woman's strangeness, of her foreignness? It's highly unlikely that we're to take this as raising a literal concern about the temptation of non-Israelite women, though foreign women in that sense did cause Israelite men trouble at times. Rather, the sense of strangeness and foreignness of this woman seems to be that she is to be considered as off-limits, out-of-bounds, forbidden to Solomon's son and to all the men among God's people. She is foreign with regard to God's design for marriage. Verse 17 will elaborate in such a way that it makes it clear that the problem has to do with adultery. Don't miss the irony in this description. Solomon may have been thinking about the troubles brought to David's life because of David's pursuit of a woman who was forbidden to him, namely Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Now Solomon is warning his son about the danger that a forbidden woman can cause. And he paints her as attempting to seduce and draw away the godly wise man, which was not the case with Bathsheba. But Solomon witnessed firsthand some of the devastation that resulted from David's sin with a forbidden woman. Before we unpack these verses further, bear with me for a big picture reflection for a moment. It has become fashionable in some circles recently to suggest that the Bible, and the book of Proverbs in particular, disparages women, demeans their value, and portrays them as villains because women are evil simply by nature of their gender. I do not see that. This forbidden woman is brought to the attention of the son, not because women are so evil, but because the young man's sexuality is so powerful. There are indeed some women who would exploit that in men, and it is reasonable to warn young men of that possible threat without painting all women as threats. The teaching is directed to sons. He's not saying women don't be like this, although that would be good counsel. He's saying, men, your sexual desires can make you vulnerable to go astray. Make use of God's wisdom 
to restrain your sexual desires so that you will not give in to such temptations. So, Solomon describes the danger such a woman poses. In a somewhat parallel way to the way he depicted the evil man in verses 12 to 15, we first learn about the forbidden woman's discourse. As with the evil man, the greatest danger the forbidden woman poses is her words, her smooth words. Perhaps we would say slippery words to convey the same picture. The metaphor usually has to do with flattery. Notice that Solomon doesn't here warn his son of the danger of her using her physical appearance to lure him away. He will mention that later in chapter 6, but the primary danger is the woman's words. It is often through flattery, through compliments, that a woman gains the affection of a man whose ego is often vulnerable to the kind of inflation that complimentary words can cause. God's wisdom helps a man know who he is, having his identity shaped by God's word so that he is not susceptible to the kinds of flattery that might lead him astray. Secondly, we learn about the forbidden woman's departure in verse 17. The evil man had forsaken the paths of uprightness. This woman has forsaken her husband. This is not referring to divorce by abandonment, the way the New Testament does. Rather, this is plain and simple adultery. Later, Solomon will describe how a married Israelite might seduce another man while her own husband is away on a trip. Though not Israelite, Potiphar's wife comes to mind as an example of the kind of woman being described here. This verse is important as it specifies that marriage is a covenant relationship with Yahweh involved in that relationship at a fundamental level. But here, the danger lies in the fact that such a woman has betrayed her vows to her husband and would seek to hoodwink Solomon's son. If she isn't remaining loyal to her marriage vows... What hopes should the man she's seeking to entice have that she'll remain loyal to him? God's wisdom reminds God's man of the importance of marriage vows. Those who break their marriage vows will be held accountable by the Lord. And Solomon's son must not get sucked into getting involved with a woman who would be unfaithful to her own marriage covenant. Thirdly, we learn about the forbidden woman's den. There's a translation difficulty in verse 18, acknowledged by most commentators. Most likely, the verse should be translated, for she sinks down to death, her house. In other words, her house is death. However we translate the verse, it's clear that she's being associated closely with death. The Solomon warns the son that getting involved with her is going to lead to destruction. God's wisdom will help him discern the truth that her smooth words are seeking to pull him into a fatal trap. Thus, in verse 19, Solomon tells us about the forbidden woman's doom. And I mean by that, the doom that she brings to those she successfully seduces, the doom she causes. There's a subtle figure of speech that is easily missed in verse 19. If we translated the first line, none who go into her come back, we might get the point better. Solomon is warning his son about a sexual connection with this woman as the phrase go into often refers to sexual intercourse in the Old Testament. He's basically telling us that there's no coming back from that. And from the second line of verse 19, he's warning of judgment and death for the one who gives in to the seduction of the forbidden woman. As John Kitchen puts it, when you walk through the door of sexual sin, it slams behind you and you soon discover that it is a door with a knob on only one side. While the possibility of repentance is always held out, To the penitent, the nature of sexual sin is such that it blinds us to that possibility. 
This is our first of many warnings in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs about the dangers of sexual immorality. Let us all take heed. God's wisdom protects us from this doom by showing us God's beautiful design for human sexuality, as well as warning us of the consequences and the judgment in store for those who distort or ignore that beautiful design. The lesson finally comes to an end in the sixth stanza in verses 20 to 22, depicting life among the righteous and death among the wicked. Verse 20 provides the ultimate positive purpose for pursuing wisdom. The good and the righteous are both plural nouns in verse 20. That is to say that Solomon is encouraging his son and his readers that there is a community of good and righteous people, and he and we should want to join that community and be helped along in our pursuit of wisdom by that community. Of course, the New Testament depicts that good and righteous community as the church. But here, Solomon is indicating that walking among the good and righteous people of God is the ultimate outcome of pursuing God's wisdom. The path of wisdom has been walked by others before us, and we can join others on that same path even now. Now, Jesus will depict that path as a narrow road with a narrow gate. However, and he indicates that there are few who will find it. But to be sure, those who do find it are those who seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. In verses 21 and 22, Solomon supplies a final summary conclusion intended to motivate his son and us readers to pursue God's wisdom with both a positive motivation and a final climactic negative motivation. One writer has suggested that the concept of inhabiting the land in the Old Testament should be understood by Christians as equivalent to abiding in Christ. Of course, for the Israelite Old Testament reader, for Solomon's son, the idea of continuing to dwell in the land of Israel under God's covenantal blessing would have been the primary idea. Likewise, the warning against the wicked and the treacherous people that their wickedness and their treachery will result in them being cut off and rooted out of the land also reflects the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, the last phrase, being rooted out or uprooted from the land, is surely reflective of Deuteronomy 28, 58 to 63. Here's a portion of that covenant curse from the New English translation. If you refuse to obey all the words of this law, the things written in this scroll, and refuse to fear this glorious and awesome name, Yahweh your God, then Yahweh will increase your punishments and those of your descendants. This is what will happen. Just as Yahweh delighted to do good for you and make you numerous, so he will also take delight in destroying and decimating you. You will be uprooted from the land you are about to possess. Giving in to the unrighteous ways of the evil men or succumbing to the sexual temptations of the forbidden woman will result in judgment. And Solomon may very well be pointing to the larger, final judgment of eternal punishment. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is ultimately what the cutting off of the wicked refers to. Negatively, not inheriting the kingdom of God, not inhabiting that eternal land of the new creation, and positively, being eternally punished in hell. 
Thus, as Christians, we read Proverbs chapter 2 as a clear instruction for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we see the promise of inhabiting the land and remaining in it as ultimately pointing toward the eternal inheritance promised to us in the new covenant. Thus, we can rejoice in heeding Solomon's warning as those who were formerly on the path to destruction, those who were formerly guilty of the kinds of evil and sexual immorality Solomon warns his son about. As Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 6.11, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Yes, there is hope, gospel hope for the sinner, for the fool, for the evil, for the wicked, for the adulterous, for the sexually immoral. As Hebrews 11 makes clear, there is a country, a land, to which the land of Israel pointed in a shadowy way. Thus, as commentator Andrew Steinman writes, the real goal of God's people is not any land or city on this earth, nor any position or possessions in this life. Rather, believers look forward to the new heavens and new earth. They desire a better land that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them, quoting Hebrews eleven sixteen. Steinman also says, God's wisdom incarnate in Christ saves all believers and preserves them to life everlasting in union with the triune God. As many of you have come to realize, I love to speak of tensions in the Bible. Others might use the term paradox, and still others might use the more precise technical term antinomy. And of course, still others, refusing to attempt to hold two ideas together, like to use the word contradiction. But I prefer the term tension. Much of our salvation is wrapped up in certain biblical tensions. For example, one tension can be expressed as already, not yet. The Christian is already counted righteous, but not yet experientially righteous. Already a saint, but not yet experientially holy. Already a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, but not yet living in the new Jerusalem. Already raised with Christ, but not yet resurrected bodily. Already seeing and enjoying God's glory, but not yet entirely glorified. Pretty much every aspect of our salvation can be characterized as already, but not yet. These saving tensions are reflected all over the New Testament. The gospel itself could be described as a saving tension. Jesus humbled himself in order to be exalted. Jesus died to achieve victory. The path to glory is suffering. No crown without a cross. Or consider God's love for the world and his hatred for sinners. Can we hold together verses like Psalm 5-5? You hate all evildoers. And John 3-16, for God so loved the world. Or what about God's transcendence and his eminence? How can he be so far above us, so much bigger than us, and yet come down to be with us? One of the most famous tensions that has remained at the center of controversy for the better part of 2,000 years is usually expressed as the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. This tension has several variations. Sometimes it's expressed in concerns about reconciling election with faith. Sometimes it's expressed in concerns uh, like God's meticulous providence, like we see in Ephesians 1.11, where God is described as the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, and then recognizing all the commands of Scripture, particularly all the disobeyed commands of Scripture, 
as well as the warnings, like we're looking at in Proverbs 2, of punishment for the disobedient. When we hold those two things together, we've got a tightly wound tension. Perhaps as a subset of this larger tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, as traditionally conceived, we have the tension between grace and works. Conceived this way, we have another saving tension to consider. Helpfully, both sides of this tension show up in a single sentence in Proverbs 2, 12, and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Likewise, this is the tension reflected in Proverbs 2. We are commanded to do the hard work of listening, studying, digging for the treasure, the buried treasure that is wisdom. But then in the same long Hebrew sentence, we are promised that the wisdom we're seeking is a gift from the Lord. Grace and works. As we saw, the mine in which we must dig is the Scriptures. As Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, it is the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. But since Paul also tells us in Colossians 2.3 that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, we must read those sacred writings looking for how they point to Jesus and looking for how they show Jesus as the embodiment of God's wisdom. Get Christ and you'll get wisdom. But it isn't automatic. It isn't a formula. Your effort is necessary, but not decisive. A rubber band is only useful when it is stretched. I know some of you can't see this, so use your imagination. It's a small rubber band. When force is applied to one end of the rubber band, pulling it out like this, tension is produced. If I had a, a book, I used to work in the public library, I used to do book binding and repairs, we'd often take these big rubber bands after we'd glued pages in, and we'd put the rubber band around the book, holding it for days while the glue dried and everything pressed in place. If I had a book that size, I could pull it at the right tension, wrap it around the book, and it would hold it together, helping it to repair. So stretching out the rubber band like this illustrates bringing God's grace into tension with human responsibility, with our responsibility. Or bringing God's wisdom as a gift into tension with our work and digging for it as hidden treasure. You know, there's a range of tension that can be applied with this rubber band so that it remains useful. And likewise, there may be a range of ways that we can hold together conceptually our understanding of God's grace, and our understanding of our effort. But what we must not do is drop one side of the tension because then it's useless. It doesn't do us any good to drop one side of the tension. It won't work. It won't hold the book together. But the other thing that we must not do is stress, stretch one side too far. I'm not going to let it go. You know what will happen. And I practiced it and sustained an injury, so I'm not going to do that again. But if you stretch and put too much force on, too much emphasis on one side of the tension, the rubber band will break. And the rubber band is not only useful, useless, it's been destroyed. And somebody got hurt, this guy. 
That's the way it works with our theological tensions as well. Anytime we put too much emphasis on one end of attention to the exclusion of the other destroys the beauty of the tension as it's given in the Scriptures, and usually people get hurt. I've seen it too many times. Our vision gets clouded when we're looking at these tensions and we either just can't handle it and so we just let go of one side of it or we push and pull on one side and then somebody gets hurt. The saving tension of wisdom laid out in Proverbs 2 is important to hold on to both sides. If you want God's wisdom to help you navigate the difficulties of life, if you want God's wisdom protect you, to protect you from giving in to sinful temptations presented to you from the world around you, you must ask God and trust God to give it to you as a gift. But you also must do the work. Dig in the mine. Open the scriptures and look for Jesus on every page. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Doing so will change you into a person who wisely reaches out to love your neighbor as yourself. And when your searching is not so diligent, when your effort is lacking, or when your motives are off, when your desires are distorted, when you fail to pursue wisdom, God's grace will meet you there too. Jesus died for fools. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died to provide forgiveness. The Bible tells me so. Do you believe it? Are the Scriptures making you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? If your answer is no, then are you reading the Bible? Not just the portions you're already familiar with, not just your favorite stories or passages. Are you immersing yourself in the whole of this great book? Are you searching in every crevice and corner of the mine to find where the treasures are hidden? Are you searching to see all the ways that it points to Jesus and tells you of the great salvation he's won for you? Let's pray for the motivation to make that the great pursuit of our lives. Join me. Father, thank you for your promise to give us wisdom. Thank you for your invitation to ask you for it. And we do ask for it. We ask for it every day, acknowledging our lack of it and our need for it. Thank you that you promised to grant it by grace. But at the same time, Lord, we recognize that You don't promise to flip it on as a switch. You don't promise to drop it down as a neon sign from heaven. You promise to give it as we're in the pursuit. So help us to get in on the game. Help us to get into the pursuit. Help us to run the race. Help us to take the next step. Help us to put forth the effort. Help us to lay aside all of the excuses that we tend to bring up when it comes to studying our Bible and going deeper and wanting more. Help us to see our excuses as they are and repent of them. Help us to make this the grand pursuit of our life, knowing that the promise is that we'll know you better. Our intimacy with you will be increased and magnified and we'll gain success in giving giving up our pet sins and overcoming our temptations. Lord, help it. Help us to see it that way and may it be so in each one of our lives. Give us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got a few announcements.